0: Good evening. Um, It's a pleasure to welcome you on behalf of the Migration Studies Unit to LSE and this evening's um, inaugural lecture. My name is Eike Thielemann, I'm um, the academic chair of the new Migration Studies Unit. And I will be chairing tonight's lecture in the absence of David Held, who unfortunately is suffering from the flu and cannot join us um, tonight. Before I introduce tonight's speaker, um, I would like to say a few words about um, the Migration Studies Unit. Some might say it's been long overdue, um, but now with the support of many LSE staff, but uh, perhaps more importantly, the enthusiasm and hard work of many LSE students I'm interested in this issue, the Migration Studies Unit has been established to provide LSE with an interdisciplinary platform for the study, discussion, and analysis of what is arguably one of the most important and challenging issues of our times. To play a part in the... in addressing these challenges posed by migration, um, the LSE Migration Studies Unit tries to bring together um, students, policymakers, academics, but also members of the wider general public um, to obviously discuss and, and debate these issues Um, by organizing a number of activities. And these activities range from, obviously, public lectures like the one tonight, but also include um, a a jointly organized migration research seminar series that we do together with um, the School of Oriental and African Studies, which offers an opportunity for academics and research students to present their preliminary early work um, and publish their early results in the unit's working paper series. There's also at LSE now a fortnightly migration reading group um, and um, we also have planned a series of conferences, the first one of which will be happening on the fourteenth of December on the topic of migration and involuntary return. You will see some registration forms um, on the on the tables outside. You can find further details on all of these events and activities on our website, and um, you will find, obviously, the address of which um, around, the, around the room. There's also a, an opportunity there to sign up and register yourself and become part of our mailing list, and we're happy to inform you about future events. Tonight, to, to start us off, um, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Stephen Castles, um, who has kindly agreed to give this evening's inaugural lecture. It's hard to imagine a more qualified scholar to launch this initiative um, than Professor Castles. Having made his early career um, in in Australia, he was appointed Professor of Migration and Refugee Studies at the University of Oxford in 2002, where for many years he was director of the Refugee Studies Centre, which arguably was the leading centre on forced migration Um, in the the world. He's currently director of the International Migration Institute in Oxford, which recently received a a very large grant from the MacArthur Foundation um, for a project on African perspectives on human mobility. Professor Castles himself has um, conducted research on migration in Europe, um, Australia, Asia, and more recently Africa, he has advised several national governments as well as numerous um, international organizations. He has also written some of the discipline's most influential books, including Ethnicity and Globalization, Citizenship and Migration, and perhaps most importantly, The Age of Migration, which is currently or just about to be in the, in the fourth edition. The topic of tonight's Lecture is Migration and Social Transformation. Um, Professor Castles has agreed to talk for about an hour and to take questions of about 30 minutes afterwards. Afterwards, you're also cordially invited to join us upstairs um, for a reception um, and kind of continue the discussions um, more informally over a glass of wine. I've also been asked to remind you that tonight's lecture will be recorded and uh, we hope to make a podcast available on the Migration Studies Unit website um, shortly. But now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Stephen Carlson.
1: Well, it's a, a great honor to be invited to give this inaugural lecture for your new Migration Studies Unit, and I'd like to congratulate ICO, and Justin and Marco and everyone else who's worked to make this unit possible I think it's a, a great occasion and uh, just on a more personal note I'm, I'm very happy to be speaking at LSE because uh, when I was growing up it was uh, the great thing, my mother wanted me to go to LSE and, and study here and become an international civil servant and I, I never quite made it um, In fact, the last time I spent any time at LSE was in 1968 when it was occupied by the students, but we actually slept here and were, you know, mounting barricades outside. I I realize that's before most of you were born, but it was a a very different climate in those days. Um, So anyway, to to get back to the theme, I, I, I see the establishment of your Migration Studies Unit as a a reason for celebration because it will help to focus the great analytical capacities of LSE on this important topic, but it's also an occasion for caution because the study of international migration is full of pitfalls, like forgetting to put your PowerPoint on when you start, for instance. How do, how do I do it? I think
0: if you just click further. Then.
1: Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Okay. We're getting there. Um, so migration studies has really taken off in the last 10 years. There are um, special units in universities all around Europe and in other parts of the world. There were degree courses, specialized journals, conferences, and even a European network of excellence. Hundreds of doctoral candidates are working on migration-related themes, and many of them see their futures in one of the special research units that are... Springing up all over the place. But beyond celebrating this growth, we have to ask why is it happening? Is it because social scientists have recognised that mobility is one of the key dynamics of contemporary global change? Or is it because migration regulation, immigrant integration, and the migration development nexus have become highly politicised issues? I would like to think it's the former, but I fear that it's actually the latter. So one of my main themes tonight is the ambivalence of the growth of migration studies. Um, The politicization has generated a need for data collection, analysis, and research. And of course, this is a good thing for all of us who study migration. It means we're being listened to even if what we say is then ignored most of the time. Um, We are policy relevant. We are um, engaged with users. We are working in the national interest to use some ESRC language. Um, Now, international migration can and should be studied in 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 a socially relevant way. It should address the concerns of migrants communities affected by migration in both sending, transit and receiving countries. It should look at what it means for civil society and government. But, and this is where the ambivalence comes in, there's a danger that it will move from being policy relevant to being policy driven. In other words, instead of addressing fundamental social issues, It will focus on the short-term policy concerns of governments and international agencies. And the result of this is that the the research questions, the methods, and even sometimes the findings may be dictated by funding bodies. Um, The result is likely to be not only bad social science, but also a bad guide to policy. So my argument is, That to avoid this, migration studies needs to be embedded into research on the major processes of social transformation which are taking place in the context of increased global integration. Uh, Migration studies must reject the role of being an administrative tool for policymakers. So my second main theme is the importance of embedding Migration studies into the analysis of global social transformation. So this is what I'm going to talk about today. Firstly, I'm going to give some examples of migration policy failure and the role of migration studies in it. Then I'm going to come back to this idea of the politicization of migration. Then I'm going to mention some of the conventional wisdoms about migration today. Um, and then talk about where migration theory is going, and then come back to this notion of using social transformation as an analytical framework. Then I'll map out the consequences of doing that for theory, methods, and the way we organize research, and then I'll come back to some of these conventional wisdoms to see how we can look at them through the lens uh, of a different analytical approach. So let me start with some examples of um, migration policy failure. And they're they're very common. If you look over the migration policies of the past, you find all the time that they either fail to reach their objectives or they actually achieve exactly the opposite of what they set out to do. And here are just a few examples. Um, The United States relationship with Mexico, um, and the attempts to stop irregular migration. Of course, migration from Mexico started because the United States government recruited Mexican workers, braceros, they were called, to work in U.S. agriculture. Then they decided to stop the process, I think, in 1964, and they found, of course, that the migration continued in an irregular form. In 1986, the United States um, Congress passed the Immigration Reform and Control Act, IRCA, and IRCA was was meant to legalize existing irregular workers and then to prevent future irregular migration. And uh, anyone who studied it will know that it was a total failure, that it, it did legalize millions of workers, but they immediately left the low-wage jobs they'd been in as irregulars and so it created an enormous need for replacement migration so irregular migration actually escalated Um, the result was a few years later the Clinton administration brought in what was called Operation Gatekeeper which meant building walls along the frontier or parts of the frontier, it's a very long frontier so they only built it in the inhabited areas like say between San Diego and Tijuana And that didn't stop migration. What it did was, firstly, it created a business opportunity for people who are called coyotes, people smugglers, who could suddenly charge a lot of money for trying to bring people safely through the desert. Secondly, it led to an enormous increase in the death rate. Between 500 and 1,000 people die every year trying to get over that southern border of the USA. And it actually led to an increase in the irregular population of the United States because it became so dangerous to cross the border that once people had made it, they stayed and they brought their families in. So so now the United States has 12 million, officially estimated, 12 million irregulars. So this is an example of a powerful modern state which achieves exactly the opposite of what it's trying to do. Um, Just very quickly, a few other examples. Australia set up a a, a mass immigration programme in 1947 to build up its population, and the aim was to keep the country white and British, official aims. The result is that Australia, 50 years on, is one of the most diverse populations anywhere in the world. Germany ran a guest worker programme in the 60s and early 70s designed to bring in temporary workers who were not allowed to stay or bring in their families. What was the result? When they tried to stop that program, family reunion grew, other forms of migration grew. Germany had the highest immigration of any European country and now has, I think it's, uh, I always forget the figure, is it 9 million or 7 million um, immigrant population? And uh, recently I've been looking at what's happening in new immigration countries like Korea, and Taiwan, and it's very interesting to see that when those governments started labor recruitment about 10 years ago, they said we will have workers and they won't stay and now 10 years on for instance the Korean government is already setting up an anti-discrimination agency and talking about integration because they realize that you can't have labor migration without uh, at least a certain proportion of settlement. So those are just some examples of effective modern states who've really got it very wrong. So what I want to ask is, what is the role of migration studies in that? Have migration scholars warned the policy makers this won't work? Have they been ignored? Unfortunately not. That's not what has happened. Usually, migration studies has tended to go along with the conventional wisdoms of the time. Um... And so the official policies have often been based on the fundamental misunderstanding of migratory processes, but the migration scholars of the time have often even reinforced that. And I think we need to understand the reasons for that. Um, I think one reason is that migration has always been such a sensitive issue in the whole idea of the formation of nation-states. There's always this drive... To a homogenous national identity and migrants don't fit in so we have this idea of methodological nationalism which was coined most recently I think by Andreas Wimmer and Nina Glick Schiller the idea that migration scholars work within frameworks of conventional assumptions about how minorities and migrants should be dealt with they don't tend to question it um, I think this is very closely linked with the way the um, social sciences developed in the 19th and early 20th centuries, especially sociology. It's really very much part of the process of nation-state formation. It's about managing relationships within national industrial societies. And particularly if you look at the theories of the 19th century, it's about controlling dangerous classes and integrating them into the system or about, because it was applied in the colonies too, particularly by anthropologists it's about controlling dangerous peoples and making them fit into the colonial world Um, so the, the way social science has been constituted has tended to reinforce this methodological nationalism if we look at that in the context of Migration, we find this this very strong belief in the idea of assimilation. Um, As uh, the French historian Renan said, forgetting about difference is vital to building national identity. He was talking about the expansion of the French nation-state, not about migration, but it's the same principle. If we look at Weber's notion of rationality, there's this strong belief that has been taken over by generations of sociologists that modern industrial societies will be based on rational relationships not on what he called affective relationships like religion, ethnicity culture and so on. Uh, Marxist theory subscribes to this area they agree there with Weberian theory that um, rationality will mean giving up these earlier cultures. And We find this in the uh, ideas of the Chicago school that the Being a migrant in a modern society is a form of deviancy and it can be dealt with by mechanisms of re-socialization so that the migrants adopt modern norms and become good Americans in this case. Um, (coughs) So, you know, these have been the assumptions that leading social scientists have made about how minorities and difference could be dealt with. Um, If we look at the migration theories of the 60s and 70s about how to deal with immigration into Britain or Germany or France at that time, we find that there was largely a failure to predict that labor migration would lead to permanent settlement and ethnically diverse populations. Um, There was an expectation that minority languages and cultures would just be very transient transient phenomena that would would die out quickly Um, and now we find more recently a new sort of orthodoxy in migration theory and this is really what influences policy very strongly uh, the the dominance of neoclassical economic theory that looks at sort of a new notion of rationality based on a sort of methodological individualism it's what individuals do to maximise their income that really drives migration and that, of course, is linked to the fact that within migration studies, there has tended to be a fragmentation by discipline and paradigm. So what does this mean in the context of the politicization of migration research? I think we have to see that the, you know, that crossing a, a national border is a simple thing for an individual to do, something you would expect in a globalising world but it's really part part of one of the great dramas of our time the contradiction between the national principle of sovereignty which means that states should control who comes across borders and the transnational principle of global mobility and we find that states have moved on this transnational principle to accept the idea that flows of capital and commodities are crucial to the new economy, are a good idea but the flows of people and cultures are still seen as highly threatening. So here is an image, this is a sort of celebratory image you get of how globalization works, all these beautiful flows around the world. This isn't people at all, it's dairy products, just as an example. This is the, uh, the flow of dairy, the red is cheese, the blue is cheese and butter, and so on. Uh, it's the idea there should be this free flow around the world, things should be produced where there's a comparative advantage, you know, the sort of Ricardian principle of comparative advantage and that will lead to what um, some people like Konichi Omai a sort of real hyper in uh, David Hell's terms uh, calls the borderless world um, the reality is totally different though when you look at flows of people this is what happens when people try and cross borders in this spontaneous way Um, This is the border between the Spanish enclave of Melilla and Morocco in 2006. The day before this picture was taken, many African migrants had tried to cross these very formidable barriers and six six of them had been shot. I'm not sure whether it was by the Moroccan or the Spanish army. This is the Spanish army guarding the border the day after this happened. But of course we should remember that uh, the main way that European borders are guarded is not through walls, it's through the sea. And I'm sure many of you have seen this map. It was published about four or five years ago by uh, Le Monde Diplomatique and it indicates the number of people who have been killed at different crossing points from Africa to Europe. And you can see that the largest number, over 3,000 people, had been killed trying to get across the Straits of Gibraltar, but others uh, killed trying to get into Britain, into Italy, and so on. So the sea is a formidable defence for Europe, but in fact all of this is rather beside the point because the main barriers are invisible these days. They're things like biometrics, asylum policies that make it impossible for people to even apply for asylum, Visa requirements, so that asylum seekers can't even get on a plane because they would have to apply for uh, a passport and a visa, which they can't possibly do in a country where they're political uh, victims. Uh, Carrier sanctions, where the airline becomes an arm of the immigration service. The idea, the European Union idea, that there are safe third countries. In other words, Sri Lanka is considered a, a safe third country Um, by the British government so in principle anyone who applies for asylum coming from Sri Lanka should not even get a hearing, they should be sent back because it's a safe country Um, and then this growing trend towards surveillance of minorities Um, the, the idea that some of them have already got in so we'd better watch out and see what the minorities are doing And this this picture is interesting because this shows that the walls are not designed to keep everybody out. These are legal migrants being admitted to the United States. They're Mexican migrants at the border with San Diego, uh, between Tijuana and San Diego, who are being processed because they are actually legal. They're part of the very small minority of Mexicans who come to the United States legally. I think it's interesting because it shows in a way that the United States has the capability of setting up a system for bringing in labor legally and for regulating it, but chooses not to. There's a preference for undocumented workers because they're cheaper for employers, they're easier to control, they're easier to exploit. Um, And this is a preference you find in many parts of the world. Japan is another case. I believe the European Union does it quite systematically. We we don't have the precise estimates that the Americans have. Um, We have estimates of between 3 and 7 million undocumented migrants in Europe. We don't know very exactly. Um, But in uh, in in 2005 the European Commission put out a very interesting green paper where it said um, Europe needs migrant workers at all skill levels because of demographic and economic trends in Europe. And the member states went away and thought about it for eight or nine months and came back and said, no, we are not going to have that. We want the skilled workers from the poor countries because we need skills and we can can handle that. We don't want the low-skilled workers. So low-skilled workers still come in illegally because, of course, um, in a situation of demographic reduction and aging populations young Europeans are not going to be construction workers office cleaners, security men as the Home Office discovered this week um, and so on so we we have a a planned system of undocumented labour so the the name of the game these days is differentiation Um, a privileged entry and status for the highly skilled and for entrepreneurs people who bring capital with them. Uh, It's interesting, we have all these figures on remittances from developed countries to less developed countries. We often forget that a lot of migrants bring money with them, um, particularly of course migrant students who pay the horrendous overseas student fees and actually contribute to to universities like this one and like the one I come from. Um, So it's it's not a one-way street. Um, We have the idea that Refugees and asylum seekers should be contained and excluded, and then there are ways of what what the Japanese call side doors for the less skilled. We set up limited temporary guest worker schemes for agricultural workers, catering workers. We have this working holiday makers scheme. Virtually all developed countries do this. But then we have also the undocumented entry, which I, I, I believe is actually preferred by many governments and employers. So let me come. Hang on, I'm lost. Sorry. Um, yeah. So this is this is what's happening at the moment. We're getting a, an enormous growth in capacity for policy making in this field. So at the national level, we have ministries, task forces, agencies. Several countries now have immigration ministries. Um, We have labour market policies designed to match labour demand with migration. Um, We have a growth of laws and institutions on integration and social cohesion. Virtually all European countries have changed their immigration laws and their citizenship laws up to three or four times in the last 20 years to try and manage this. The European Union is developing common policies on migration and asylum. Part of that is about exporting border control. Uh, Some of you will remember the Seville European Council where the British and Spanish government tried to match development aid to willingness to take back failed asylum seekers. Uh, Then we had, after the the great growth in the number of boat people coming across the Mediterranean to Spain, um, the Rabat Conference in 2006, where European countries got together with African countries and tried to find a way of regulating migra- migration across the Mediterranean. Um, and the, the idea basically was that Eu- the European Union funded uh, patrol boats, surveillance mechanisms, uh, border police in African countries so that to, ask, to request African countries to stop migrants coming across. In return, the African countries would get development assistance of various kinds. And then we have, at the global level, really quite new developments, all this in the last few years. And anyone who's going to work in migration studies needs to learn this sort of alphabet soup. The GCIM, the Global Commission on International Migration, um, which was convened by Kofi Annan in 2003 reported in 2005, an excellent report, by the way, that you can download from the web. Then we had the HLD, the High Level Dialogue on Migration and Development at the United Nations in 2006. The first time ever that there was a North-South dialogue at the policy level of ministers and senior officials at the UN in September 2006. And one of the few decisions they took was to set up the GF MD, the Global Forum on Migration and Development um, which met for the first time in July this year in Brussels and will meet again in Manila next July and was basically an attempt to bring together northern and southern governments and non-governmental organizations which didn't actually lead to any decisions but at least it's the beginning of a dialogue. So Let me move on a little bit to look at migration theory and how it relates to all this new political effort. Oh no, sorry. Hang on. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, Sorry. I just wanted to to mention some of the new ideas that are accepted by politicians and by most migration scholars. The first one is the idea that North-South migration is a problem, and it's a problem that can be fixed if we address root causes. In other words, if we deal with poverty and violence, there will be less migration. So that's a widespread belief. A second widespread belief, a fairly new one because people didn't used to think this, is that migration can be a main driver of development. In other words, remittances, technology transfer, what diasporas do and so on, can be a main engine of development of poor countries. Then this other thing, this is really new, this notion of circular migration. We don't talk about temporary migration anymore. It's it's not a nice term. We talk about circular migration. And this is, according to the European Union, a win-win-win situation, which means the receiving countries gain, they get workers but no settlers. Uh, The migrants gain, of course, because they get more income and the origin countries gain because these migrants will send money home and then come back with new skills. Is it true? Um, And then looking more at the sort of integration or incorporation side of migration, um, the idea that you can impose integration through things like citizenship tests uh, and integration contracts, and that will lead to social cohesion and then in the long run you won't have to worry about diversity and transnationalism. I think these are all widely held beliefs. Are they true? I'll come back to it later when I've talked about theory a bit. So to go back a bit to the sort of dominant ideas of migration theory from the 1950s, and I've sort of put to the 1990s, it's rather vague, there's no exact cut-off the first thing is an almost complete division between theories that explain mobility, migration and theories about incorporation into society. Different theorists different bodies of work different journals, even the uh, International Sociological Association has separate committees for migration on the one hand and race and ethnic studies on the other Um, and I, I haven't really time to go into detail on this the On the the issue of explaining mobility, the the wonderful book by Doug Massey and his colleagues, World's in Motion, really has wonderful summaries of all these theories. Um, You know, the dominant one, the neoclassical economic theory with its emphasis on income, individual income motivation, uh, the uh, the, uh, human capital paradigm of how people prepare themselves for migration, and the idea of equilibrium. That migration in the long run will lead to equilibri- economic equilibrium between poor and rich countries. In other words, it will help poor countries get richer so they catch up with, the, uh, with the today's wealthy countries. Um, and then the sort of opposing theory, the main one in uh, the mobility side, is what's called historical institutional theory, which has its roots in. Um, dependency theory, Marxist theory, a bit later on world systems theory, and which argues that it's not about individuals at all, it's about mobilizing labor for capital. And the effect of this is actually uh, to make the rich countries richer and the poor countries poorer, because it's a transfer of human capital from poor to rich countries. So logically, it doesn't make the poor countries richer, it takes away their assets. And then on the other side, um, the incorporation theories, um, really I, I think they fall into three different categories, so it's not quite so clear-cut as it is with the mobility theories. There are theories about um, maintaining homogeneous identities which argue that you can't have difference in a an nation-state. This is a sort of German model. Uh, Therefore you have guest workers, you only have temporary workers because they won't change your culture, they won't be allowed to stay. So it's it's really exclusionary in the sense that you want labour but you don't want people. Then there are many countries that have the idea that you you can have inclusion of minorities only if people give up their culture. So it's the idea of assimilating people as individuals, the French model if you like but it's also a model that was subscribed to widely by both theorists and policy makers in the United States, in Britain, everywhere really, Australia, until the 1970s. And then from the 1970s, a third model, multiculturalism, the idea that modern nation states can handle difference. Um, They can accept different cultures and multiculturalism, then is propagated as a, a model for recognizing cultural difference but at the same time securing equality and fighting racism. So then I think there was a set of critical approaches which developed really from the 1970s so it's sort of a bit in parallel there's no clear cut off um, and I uh, I must here acknowledge uh, uh, a debt, especially on the mobility side, to my colleague Hein de Haas, who's written a very interesting paper on these, uh, these theories, especially what he calls transitional theories. So you have the theory of the mobility transition of Selinsky in, I think, 1970, which is a, really a. a was a geographer, and it's the idea that uh, there is a very close link between the mobility of people and the state of development of a society. So, for instance, when Britain was taking off industrially in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, it led to a decline in mortality, but an increase in fertility to the point where there were a large number of people who couldn't find employment who left the country. So the the period of most rapid industrialisation is the period of also the greatest emigration. Now, this is very important, theoretically, Because today's policy makers believe development reduces migration. It doesn't. It increases it. And this mobility transition idea, you can find it all over the place. You can find it, um, for instance, uh, a very good place to study it is Korea, which has gone through this mobility transition very recently and very rapidly. Malaysia, too. Um, But it's, it's one of the few things that most migration theorists are beginning to agree on, that development initially causes more migration. Uh, Put quite differently, but it's the same thing by Phil Martin, an American economist, who calls it the migration hump because, you know, you put it on a scale and as migration, as economic growth takes off, migration grows and then you reach a point where it sort of begins to even off and come down again when you reach a mature uh, post-industrial economy. So it looks like a hump. Uh, I won't go through all this. It would take far too long and then we have this new idea which is really becoming very prominent since about 2000 the links between migration and development um, which are mediated through money remittances sent home by migrants social remittances which means transfer of development friendly ideas knowledge, attitudes and behaviours and then this idea that brain drain the loss of skills by poor countries, is being replaced by brain circulation. And then, finally, this idea, for instance, which DFID supports very strongly in Britain, that the diasporas, the groups of migrants living in receiving countries but keeping links with their country of origin can really drive um, development. I'll come back to all that in a bit. Um, On the incorporation side, we really have a sort of backlash in the last few years. We have... um, the idea that um, multicultural models actually led to too much difference and to persistence of problems. So we have a a shift back to integration, um, which really means a new form of assimilation. Um, The idea is that we have to get away from diversity because it erodes social capital, as Putnam calls it. Um, There was this uh, report in 2002 in Britain by Ted Cantor um, about the riots in the northern cities of 2001 where he spoke of parallel lives and the need to find strategies um, to eliminate you know, people having separate institutions, separate ways of life. So we have a new, uh, new pressure for integration and social cohesion um, or as it's sometimes called uh, imposing core values. There are core British values. If you ever want to do the British citizenship test you will get a book which tells you what Britain's core values are. It's quite a big book, uh, quite, quite hard work to learn for anyone who's tried. Yeah. Um, and then we have still, I mean, this is an area where there's really very much a divide. We have other, other scholars who are saying that modern post-industrial societies are diverse, that with globalisation... There's going to be more and more diversity and we actually have to find ways of dealing with multiple identities, transnationalism, and so on. So we're beginning to move, I think, a little bit towards a theoretical synthesis, the idea that we should study not just one half of the migration process, mobility and then incorporation, but we should put it all together and see that it's really a form of linkage between societies, which is a permanent connection. And there are a range of theories which begin to make that connection. On the economic side, the so-called new economics of labour migration, the dual and segmented labour market theories, I I won't go into them, we really don't have time. Um, Very important in migration theory is now the emphasis on migration networks, which is really one of the central ideas of newer migration theories, the idea that people don't move as individuals, that your connections with uh, families, communities, uh, both migrants and non-migrants, are absolutely crucial in shaping migration. In other words, migration as a social process to which you could add also intergenerational processes and how they affect migration. Um, Then also another body of theory that has become very important in migration theory is transnational theory the idea that under conditions of globalization it's much easier for people to maintain contacts between uh, across borders so people may move physically but they still remain part of the society they come from and and they can have social, economic and cultural relationships uh, right across the world. Um, And then finally, and I suppose this comes back to uh, economics, is the idea that migration flows in the end lead to structural dependency on migration. So for instance when Germany imported guest workers um, when the the recession came in the 70s they found they couldn't do without them even in a situation of recession because certain jobs had become migrant work locals wouldn't do them anymore um, and they couldn't be forced to. So the economy becomes structurally dependent on having flows of migrant labour But emigration countries similarly become dependent. If you look at a country like the Philippines, which has about um, 10% of its population abroad all the time, it becomes a crucial part of the national economy, but also of the national culture. It's a rite of passage. It's normal for young people to go abroad. So what does this mean for the relationship between migration theory and social theory? Um, Firstly, I think we have the opportunity now through these new approaches to overcome this old split uh, between looking at origin countries and receiving countries quite separately. Um, I think we can also begin to overcome the sort of structure agency dichotomy that's been very strong in in migration studies. We can now build a sort of political economy of global change and then um, link that to the human agency that we find through the ethnography and sociology of transnational groups um, using quite different uh, methods. We can combine quantitative and qualitative research. And when we do that, we see that migration is both a result and a cause of social change, The idea that there is one-way causality, that you get development and then migration, or you get migration and then development, it doesn't work. These processes are constantly interactive. And this is really what I mean by this idea of embedding migration research in a, a much broader study of globalization and social transformation. So that's why I think we should be really thinking a lot more about what we mean with social transformation. It's it's a concept we all use in the social sciences, but we largely use it descriptively. I don't think it's really been adequately theorized, and I think it could be a central analytical concept. Now, what, what it really means is the idea of a fundamental change in social structure and relationships. I mean, these things change all the time, of course but sometimes they change in very basic ways. And this is really um, what you find... I mean, the the work that really starts this debate is Karl Polanyi's work on the great transformation. We need to sort of update that work and apply it to the, um, the globalization process. It's a result of step changes, if you'll forgive the Americanism. It's the idea, you know, some things change very suddenly in a big way, like the end of the Cold War led to an enormous political reconfiguration of the world. Um, So there are these sudden changes which then affect everything else. You find this very well explained in in Joe Stiglitz's book, Globalization and Its Discontents. Um, So we have a simultaneous reconfiguration of economies and politics at a global level. And this is transforming the relationships between societies, and I would argue migration shouldn't be studied on its own, but as part of that much broader task. So that's really what, what we should be doing. We should be studying social transformation and how these global changes are experienced and lived through in local ways, where local cultures and histories influence them. And migration should always be put. I mean obviously, we study migration. Um, you know, as a specialized topic but we should always understand it in that context. So this is just a very rough quick idea of this relationship that globalization changes the societies of the South because the agricultural revolution um, increases productivity but also uh, concentrates ownership in fewer and fewer hands and pushes millions of people off the land and they move into cities which can't offer adequate living standards or employment. Um, And of course often this is exacerbated where you get undemocratic states where there are high levels of conflict and violation of human rights. Uh, It's also exacerbated by global governance mechanisms because structural adjustment policies have often done a lot Um, To increase the the problems at at the urban level, especially the problems of middle classes who are pushed out of public service jobs. All these things lead to emigration. So it's not poverty that causes emigration, it's change. It's the destruction of people's existing ways of life. And we find the same happening in reverse, part of the same process in the North. Globalisation means economic restructuring, the decline of old industries, people losing their skills, uh, losing their jobs, and at the same time we have a weakening of the welfare state, a weakening of community structures, and then can't quite blame this on the uh, neoliberal model. We have a fertility decline, which is, is very important in most developed countries, and therefore new demands for labor. So you have this phenomenon of simultaneous high unemployment, in many regions of developed countries, and the need for for immigration. And I think one reason why there's been a rise of extreme right parties and racism in developed countries is that immigrants are often the symbol of these changes. They're not the causes, but they're a visible symbol that is much easier to understand than what's actually happening um, in the economy and the society. At the same time, of course, globalization creates the technical conditions for migration. That's a fairly obvious point, cheaper transport, easier communications. Um, We have cultures that transcend borders and give people awareness of opportunities for migration. And this facilitates the growth of migrant networks. And I think the result of that is that migration moves from being, I think, you know, you used to migrate Say from Britain to the USA, and you expected that to be for your lifetime. Now, mobility can be something you do repeatedly. You move back and forwards. You have virtual movement through new communication. Mobility becomes a life structure. So, what does that mean for those of us who work on migration? Well, on the theoretical level, our real theme should be global connectivity. In other words, how all these global factors are changing communities and societies. We need to be studying all sorts of transnational processes in the political sphere, the economic sphere, and the social sphere. We need to work at multiple levels simultaneously. There is no point in just understanding the macro factors, the political economy, if you can't link it to what happens locally, nationally, and regionally. So we need Methods that go across the qualitative and the quantitative, the political economy, and the anthropology. Um, Or, in other words, we need to always relate structure and action. What does that mean for our methodology? Well, obviously, interdisciplinarity, because you can never understand these changes through a single discipline. We need quantitative research. It's absolutely crucial that we understand these macro factors, that we do understand the statistical uh, tools that we could use to analyze it. But we need the historical understanding too. And that's one problem of short-termism, that if you don't have a long perspective on change, uh, you, you can get quite misleading results. We need to compare different societies to see how these things work in different places. And we need a holistic approach And that's what I mean by the embedding migration studies in understanding social transformation. And we need to understand the agency of migrants and communities, that they are actors with their own interests and their own capabilities. So we need to use participatory research techniques and qualitative methods. Um, And then we need to organize our research differently. We need to work together with... If we see it as a global process, we shouldn't be going out from a country like Britain and studying countries of origin. We should be working with scholars from those regions so we can mutually benefit from our cultural understanding and knowledge. Um, We should be very careful about our use of language because I found that when working internationally, that say you take a term like integration in English and it means something totally different when you translate it or you use it in other societies. Um, and then finally, I think um, we should know why we're doing the research. I mean, I don't think it should just be an exercise in order to make a living or to get marks in the RAE or something. I think we should be thinking about the consequences of our research. You know, I, I believe in this notion of engagement and collaborating, working with the effective Communities, the civil societies, but also with policymakers and practitioners and understanding that politicians and officials do have problems they have to solve and maybe we can help them with it in, in one way or another. So let me just, before I conclude, come back to some of these conventional wisdoms. Is South-North migration a problem to be fixed by dealing with the root causes? Well, I think that idea helps to support global government strategies that impose Western values and free markets. The idea, you just do things the Western way, you won't have the migration problem. It's simply not true. Everything we know about migration and development indicates that at least in the early phases of development, you will have more migration. And that is not an argument against development policies. It's an argument for development st- policies that are really conscious and that address these issues and find forms of development that lead to mobility that is beneficial to the people concerned and the societies concerned. Can migration drive development? This is a really interesting one. It really is the established idea at the moment. Um, Ten years ago, nobody believed it. Ten years ago, everyone believed migration was harmful to development. And I think You can look at it in one way as a new version of the modernization theories of the 50s and 60s, if anyone remembers them, the idea that building wealth in certain areas of uh, developing countries would trickle down to the poor, the poor would benefit in the long run. I think it's the same idea. Instead of development policies that target governance and corruption and all the problems of developing countries, we say the migrants will pay. The migrants are already sending back twice as much money as uh, official development aid. Let the poor pay for their own development. I think it's highly suspect. What we do know by looking at um, developing societies like Mexico and uh, Morocco and India or Turkey is that migration alone does not lead to development. It only leads to development in the context of much broader policies to improve infrastructure, improve governance and so on. It can be a part of sustainable development but not on its own. What about circular migration? Well, it's misguided because anyone who studied what happened in the 70s in Europe will know that democratic states cannot prevent migration settlement if people really want to settle. We don't have the capability, fortunately, to do that. Some temporary migrants will become settlers, and we need to plan for that. Migrants don't automatically benefit from circular migration if they are denied equal rights, if they're forced to do the worst jobs. So we need equality, in, even in temporary migration policies, equal rights for migrant workers. And it will only benefit their sending countries if migration is part of an integrated development strategy. So what about the incorporation side? Well, I'm very sceptical about the idea of integration contracts, as they have in the Netherlands or Germany, for instance, and France now too, or the idea of um, saying these are the national values and people must accept them. I think globalisation inevitably leads to greater cultural diversity. Even without migration, that would happen. And what we really need is strategies for building societies that can deal better with diversity. If we try and impose integration, we're going to get more racism and conflict. Transnationalism is sure to increase in the future. So to come to a conclusion, I would summarize by saying that recent advances in migration theory do give us the opportunity for bridging some of these old divisions and overcoming the marginalization of migration studies. But unfortunately, there's not much evidence that decision makers are paying attention to these improvements in knowledge. They still tend to choose the migration research that fits in with their preconceptions and their political needs. And I think that's going to lead to future problems, but it doesn't worry politicians because politicians on the whole are looking at the electoral cycle and beyond that, there's not much interest. So I'm sorry to be a little bit pessimistic, but that doesn't mean we should give up trying, and I think enhancing knowledge is always going to be beneficial. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, um, for outlining with such clarity um, some of the challenges that scholars, um, policy makers, but probably everybody else who is trying to make sense of complex migration realities, and we're not just talking about the Home Office here, um, has has to face up to. Professor Castle has agreed to take questions. Um, May I ask those of you who have questions um, to wait for one of the microphones to reach you? And could you also please say who you are and uh, where you're from, and please keep your questions short so that we can get quite a few in. Anybody's got a question? Right there at the back. Um, uh, good evening. Uh, thank you for an excellent presentation. My name is Gabriel Moreno. I'm um, a scholar researching um, a Mexican immigrants um, their consumption of television news in, in the U.S. And, um, and, and, and I'm wondering uh, what do you think about the notion that transnationalism um, uh, is a theory that serves the purposes of challenging structures of domination and uh, that using its voc- vocabulary um, challenges the, the methodological nationalism of uh, simulation and uh, cultural pluralism. Uh, perspectives in the study of migration? And why are you usually distant from uh, the discourse of transnationalism? Thank you. Can I collect a, a couple of, uh, of questions and, and then pass to, to Stephen? Here in the, in the back.
2: Okay. Thank you very much for your talk. I'm Karolina Pop from Student at SOAS. Um, you mentioned the policy community, you mentioned the role of academia the need to bridge um, the gap between research and policy, Communi- uh, communities and civil society was on, on one of your slides, but I was wondering, there seems to be one big player missing, which is a major driver of globalization, and that's private business and the private sector, and um, which obviously hugely benefits from and depends on migration in many ways. What ways do you see to... Rope them into the debate and into the dialogue, um, especially with respect to making migration work for development. Thanks.
0: Here in the in the front, um, I'm Bernard Ryan from the Law School at the University of Kent. Uh, thank you for a very eloquent uh, appeal for our presentation of how to uh, liberate scholars from methodological nationalism. Um, I I have one very general question, which is about the policy side, because it does seem to me that um, if that is successful, the the difficulty will still remain that policymakers are going to not be liberated from their methodological nationalism. And uh, the question then arises, well, how can the the scholars in that environment, how can they persuade the policymakers to take on board the very profound changes that uh, you outlined? All right. um, Stephen, would you like to to start answering those and we'll we'll
1: have Hmm. another round Hmm. of questions Yeah, I mean very interesting questions. I'm not quite sure that I fully understood the first one about the relationship between nationalism and uh, as a way of challenging assimilation but uh, tell me if I'm getting it wrong Um, I think what um, is implied there is that building the identity of migrant groups can be a way of combating discrimination and exclusion. Is that the way... The way well, yeah, defining immigrants in a different way. Yeah. Different from yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a very complex question because um, what has happened in, in many immigrant receiving countries is that peer migrants have come in and have been pushed into um, subaltern positions in the economy and society. And then mobilizing as a group can be a way of, of recovering Uh, well, firstly of building identity but then of fighting against exclusion and and that's really interesting if you study migrant movements I mean, if you think of, for instance the the movement in France in uh, 2005 which was a movement of descendants of migrants largely in the suburbs Um, it was not a movement rejecting French society it was really protesting against exclusion and discrimination Or if you think of the movement um, of migrant workers in the United States early in 2006, it was a movement calling for rights within the United States, but using the solidarity uh, based partly on ethnicity and partly on being migrants to mobilize. And I think that happens where where groups are excluded. I think what, what we have learned in the last 20 or 30 years is that identities don't disappear but they don't necessarily lead to a a politicization if you can maintain your identity and still be a full member of society. Um, So I think it depends very much on how people are treated. Um, uh, Alex Portes gives this very interesting example in the United States where he's got this idea of segmented assimilation, that people can get assimilated upwards or downwards in the United States, which means assimilated as white or assimilated as black. And some of the research they did about the second generation in the United States showed that um, young Hispanics who became culturally assimilated did incredibly badly because being culturally assimilated in the context of inner city ghettos meant joining gangs and, and dealing in drugs and, you know, getting into conflict with the law. Those who were not culturally assimilated who had strong... Hispanic families and maintained those values did very well in the United States education system and tended to become upwardly mobile so his idea was that by being culturally unassimilated you did better economically in, in some cases at least so it 's clearly a very complex relationship so i 'm sorry that doesn 't really fully answer what you 're saying but uh, it 's a complicated issue let me, let me come to the role of private business um, I think business is is really motivated by the idea of profit maximization, increasing business activities and so on. What you find is that business can be very um, positive about migration and mobility and diversity, or it can be negative. There is no single interest of business. Um, What you find in some countries is that it's marginal business, often small and medium enterprises, that really like excluded migrants, you know, that he want to employ illegals because they can be forced to take low wages and exclude it. Whereas bigger enterprises are often keen to get highly skilled workers and will treat them very well and is, you know, quite uninterested in what their cultural background is as long as they do the job. I, th- I think what it comes down to is that um, globalization means creating a global labor force, And that global labor force is being stratified in new ways. So it can mean equality and opportunities for some and exploitation for others. It's it's very stratified. Um, So for me, the, the role of business can be positive, but it can also be negative. It can be quite ambiguous. How to persuade the policymakers. This is something that's been worrying me for a long time because, you know, what's the point of... Enhancing our own understanding of these things if it doesn't influence what actually happens in society. Um, I I think, firstly, that it's very important for, for academics to be involved in policy dialogues and to try and communicate, which often means that we have to communicate in different ways from our normal academic papers. And I think, you know, a lot of us working in this field do try and do that. But the other is, I think, that if we can show that approaches based on false understanding of migration dynamics won't succeed, then there's a chance of influencing policy. And, I mean, that's one reason I've worked on uh, on issues of policy failure quite a lot, because I think you you can show people, you know, if it went wrong last time and you can show the reasons why it went wrong, then you can also look at what people are thinking now and try and, and make better Uh, prognoses about whether it will be successful. I I mean that's all we can do I mean in the end we we can't force people to accept what we say Shall we
0: have a second round of questions
1: Um, here in the front
2: In a term, lecturer at um, Sociology in Lindsay. Thank you very much for that very interesting presentation. Um, I had a couple of questions relating to the kind of regulatory frameworks you're showing, um, especially when you start talking about uh, the idea of nation-state and the way it's imposed upon migrants. And I'm working currently with um, East European construction workers in London, and I wonder whether um, the way that you describe this nation-state phenomena is, is seeing very uh, strongly as as a top-down approach. But in in many of my findings and and discussions with the migrants, what I found was that they they also were using the framework of nation-states to argue or resist um, this imposition, and and often, nation-states and nationalism or national identity was used um, as a form of discussing difference and as a form of stating their role in this transnational process. So I'm just wondering... Um, where, where because you did mention the agency of actors and where you see the agency of the actors in in actually using these top-down regulatory frameworks um, to their benefit
0: black uh, sweater
1: yes if I can just add my thanks to um, a very good talk on parish the North Um, um one of the things I'm researching at the moment is the responsibility that ex-colonial powers, especially in the northern hemisphere, owe to states in the southern
2: hemisphere. And I was wondering if you could give a few comments on the moral and legal responsibility of
1: ex-colonial states to um, their former colonies. Here
0: in the in the middle.
1: Tobias Euler, also sociology at LSE, picking up from a point you made not so related to that first question, he said, identities are persistent, but if identities don't disappear, doesn't that not only apply to the migrants, but also to the dominant ethnic group in the host country? And does that then consequently mean that there's an an rise in right-wing nationalism of host nation and dominant ethnic groups? you want to yeah. take it yeah, sure. okay um, I mean these, these are all very important issues which you know we, we can't really deal with adequately in a few minutes so you know thank you for I mean we really need to get into a discussion on these issues and it's interesting that three or four of the comments are going in quite similar directions so we should really be exploring this, this further Um I think one of the important things that we've learned about globalization in recent years and I think uh, David Held who couldn't be here today has has helped a lot in that is that strong globalization as we have at the moment doesn't mean erosion of the nation-state. You know, nation-states, firstly, they're more than ever before. You know, we've gone from 50 nation-states in 1945 to 192 now. And they're, in a way, more important than ever. But their function is changing. And I think um, people still do understand identity, at least partly in national terms. I think it's only partly. I think most people identify in different ways, in different contexts, which is it's, it's quite complex to understand that. I think you also get an enormous uh, diversity of identity within nation-states. Based on all sorts of things—gender, location, sexual pre- preference, class—then um, you know things like music or, or, or sport or whatever. There is an enormous possibility of cultural choices in modern, in, uh, in contemporary societies, um, and people tend to identify nationally when they feel challenged in their national existence. I think the rise of racism, and this is partly to our colleague there, the rise of racism in uh, developed countries has been partly because people have felt very insecure. They've felt insecure about economic and social change and cultural change, and more recently they've felt insecure about, you know, the perceived threat from new forces, Islam, fundamentalist Islam and, and all the rest of it. I think people feel insecure and then you tend to identify nationally, and you tend to identify your opponent nationally as well. You, you, so national identity is a two-way thing. Um, and that I think uh, you know a, a very interesting to hear of this experience of interviewing um, construction workers, and I, you know I'm, I'm sure people. And and, and that goes also in the direction that our Mexican colleague said earlier, that, you know, saying we actually come from a proud and strong nation is one way of maintaining your your self-esteem in a situation of marginalization and discrimination. Um, So I think, I mean, what, what, what comes out of it is that if we're working towards multicultural or cosmopolitan states, we should say there will be diverse identities. It's it's absolutely going to be a normal and even a growing thing in uh, in contemporary societies. The problem is when belonging to a certain national or ethnic group uh, is linked to class or to social exclusion. So what we have to do is create systems or, or policies or welfare states or whatever you like to call it, which eliminate that connection between national belonging or national origins and social position. So national identity is not going to go away, or group identity, I think. Um, Slightly different question from the colleague over there about the responsibility of ex-colonial states to their former colonies. Um, It worries me, the notion of responsibility, because the, the, uh, the ideology of colonizing states was always... Uh, we're going to civilize the barbarians, we're going to come and do them a favor, you know, the, the white man's burden, as Kipling called it, and the idea now that the um, you know, the post-colonial states should be helping former colonies they probably would help best by, by staying clear of them, I think sometimes um, I, I, think, I mean, the problem I mean, well take, take a concrete example the the issue of of trade I mean you know a lot of people say trade is better than aid if if less developed countries are really to improve their situation Um, trade is the best way but then we create rules that make that impossible so for instance one of the things that really leads to the biggest problems in certainly in parts of Africa is the common market agricultural policy you know the dumping of agricultural produce from Europe in countries that would have viable industries if they were left alone. So so to get back to what what you were saying, I think there is a responsibility, and the responsibility is really to make sure that there are fair and equal systems so that we don't go on making things worse than they need to be in in former colonial territories. And, you know, I mean, there were things like... um, or the common agriculture. There are many obvious examples. The U.S. cotton subsidies are are, are, are an example that's quoted all the time that is doing enormous damage in India, for instance. So sometimes we should be doing less, not more.
0: I think we have time for one more round of questions. Um, Here in the the front, sorry, in the bluish jacket.
3: Thank you. Michael Scheldt from the European Institute. Um, I found your, your paradigm of, or your suggestion one should study migration in the context of social transformation very convincing, but more convincing as an empirical research strategy than what you seem to suggest uh, theorizing it, because that could mean you just make it axiomatic. However, and your picture actually got me to that, your uh, final picture... I mean, there's this famous uh, notion of exit or voice as strategies of uh, basically expressing dissatisfaction with circumstances that Albert Hirschman has has opened up. And he always said that exit is actually a more conserving strategy because you don't give the feedback to your rulers if you just leave the country. And, you know, your picture says something along these lines. Those who couldn't migrate were actually bringing down the wall, not those who managed to get over it. And the brain drain migration is is another example that from the economic point of view, if you have a lot of brain drain migration, then the rich stay rich and the poor stay poor. So it could actually conserve and lead to less transformation than, than you would otherwise have.
0: In the front?
2: Hi, um, I just have a question which relates um, <coughs>
0: specifically
2: oh sorry my name is Lorna Rowe I'm doing a master in social policy research um, thus my question leads to social policies and I'm wondering um, excuse me I'm interested in the area of um, diasporas and participation in civil society um, in relation to people's habitats rights and expectations from their, their, um, their country of origin to their host country how can people participate in social policies and the provision of services um, for example health services with their own uh, culturally defined expectations, expectations and perceptions um, A, do we integrate them into social policy services um, B, if you want to create multicultural aspect of social policy is this politica- politically feasible um, i.e. I- does it have a democratic um, legitimacy or, um, or if so how would this happen how would you, how would you um, suggest means by which this could happen
0: and move over to the other side um, one question here and I'm afraid we might not be able to get everybody in but um, there will be more opportunities upstairs Over more yeah. informally
2: I'm doing migration studies in Sussex University and I was just wondering why when you spoke about the new policy directions at the global level you did not mention the organization for international migration of the United Nations do you think it has no function, no relevance at all.
1: So sorry which to
2: The Organization of for International Migrations of the UN.
1: The IOM. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Um we take
0: one or two further ones. Um I saw one here in the in, in the front. the mm. yeah, please.
2: Hello. Um, I'm really actually quite interested in this notion of nationalistic, well, uh, methodological ma- nationalism. I'm actually quite interested in the, um, the groups of migrants who have settled over several generations within a nation-state. And um, whether or not you have any experience or whether you know of any um, research which is actually focusing on the use of that methodology... We've settled migrants.
0: One final question from the lady in the in the back there.
2: Hi, I'm Georgina Lewis. I'm doing a master's here. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned a few examples of policy failure. Um, do you have any examples of policy success? <laughs> and would any of those at all
3: be in the UK? <laughs>
1: Stephen. Okay. Um, yeah, the the issue of uh, exit making it more difficult to change because the the forces of change have left. Um, I mean, I think migration is often encouraged for that reason. I mean, one, one country that I, I'm very interested in is the Philippines. The Philippines has had a mass immigration policy for years and years, and it was started by the Marcos dictatorship deliberately to get rid of forces of change, um, not to develop the country. It was migration instead of development. I think it always has been in the Philippines. Migration has not led to development in the Philippines. Um, the problem is... Um, it is really a human right to leave your country if you want to. We we can't stop people doing it. I mean, attempts to make it, uh, you know, to prevent people leaving, which which have been tried by some states, really don't work, unless you want to have a state like Albania or something with really rigid frontiers. It really doesn't work. Uh, Societies are becoming more and more open. And this is a big debate in the skilled migration area, you know the loss of doctors from Africa a lot of people are saying well why, why are they allowed to leave shouldn't they have to repay their training costs the reality is if people want to leave it's very hard to stop them and if you say to them you've got to repay your training costs they won't come back at all you know because then the, the, you know, as long as they're out of the country they don't have to repay it if you impose fines or penalties you've lost them for good. So you've got to create incentives for people to return. And I think that's the point that, um, you know, developed countries have a lot of migration too. You know, there's a lot of migration, say, between Britain and Australia in both directions, or between Britain and the United States. It's absolutely normal that people want to move. The problem is when it means a huge loss of resources or the loss of ferment for change from less developed countries. So I think, the answer is to create forms of international cooperation that give incentives to return, especially for those with skills. I mean, the interesting thing is that developed countries want to get skilled workers permanently and lower skilled workers temporarily. For the countries of origin, exactly the opposite would be good, to let the skilled workers go temporarily to enhance their skills and for lower-skilled workers to go permanently. We we, we need to find a reconciliation there. Um, Yeah, the the issue of um, diasporas and health services, if I can put it that way. Um, This is something... we, We used to do a lot of work on this in Australia. What does it mean to create equal rights for instance, in health or education, it doesn't mean giving everyone the same thing. People have different needs. So a policy that really is equitable means responding to people's needs, giving giving them the opportunity to express their needs, and then providing a level of service that responds to those needs. So, for instance, a migrant woman who is, uh, you know, mainly... Uh, working in the household rather than going out may have different needs from a male migrant worker. And um, in in Australia we used to call it access and equity, giving people equal access to health services and other services means really responding to the needs they have. And that means having quite flexible services and being very open uh, to cultural and social difference. The, The International Organization for Migration is isn't, by the way, a UN body, interestingly. Sorry, who was it? Oh, yeah, it's not a UN body. Um, Very surprising, the UN does not have a migration agency except the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, which is a forced migration agency. IOM used to call itself the travel agency of the international community because it was set up to facilitate the travel of refugees from Europe to Australia and the United States and so on. And it's developed into... Uh, A sort of embryonic world migration organization Um, the IOM is ambivalent, it's an organization that has some very good programs like programs for return of talents um, programs to combat trafficking and so on, a very important organization it also does some very negative things in my views, for instance when Australia set up its Pacific solution, which meant not allowing asylum seekers to claim asylum, but pushing them off to Pacific Islands, UNHCR wouldn't have anything to do with it. And it, it was almost, the Australian government almost had to give up this appalling policy until IOM came to the rescue and, and became an implementing agency. So I have very ambivalent feelings about IOM. But, uh, uh, allow me to make the commercial I've still got a book coming out with them next month called Migration and Development Perspectives from the South which is talking exactly about well it's not by me, it's an edited book and it's about what people in the South really think about the relationship between migration and development. So IOM's is an important body but it needs reform and uh, dialogue. Um yeah, uh, methodological nationalism and settled, mig- uh, settled migrants. I mean, I see methodological nationalism as something uh, negative because it's sort of seeing things through a national lens. Sorry I think we've got to go. <laughs> uh, um, I, I think... I think this is a hint, but um, <laughs> I so. I, I, let me just try and answer the question. I think what, what is really important is to see what happens over time uh, with different migrant communities. And um, again, if I may mention some Australian research, just because I happen to know it, the experience is incredibly different. Um, in Australia, we had this comparison in um, the experience of Greeks and Dutch immigrants and their descendants and the interesting thing is the Greeks keep their culture and language for about four generations I mean at least four, we only know four Um, the migrants who came in the 50s, in the fourth generation they still marry other Greeks, they still speak Greek at home economically they're doing fantastically they've done very well in the Australian educational system the children of manual workers have become lawyers and doctors and so on Um, so they've done really well and they've kept their ethnicity. The Dutch, on the other hand, tend to lose their language by the second generation and certainly by the third to have really very little ethnic identity, not to in marry, but to marry members of uh, other ethnic groups. And they've also done fantastically economically. There is no link between ethnic maintenance and economic success as long as the society is not racist and discriminatory against that group. Where the society is is racist against minorities, and particularly, you know, whether, I mean, we see this in France, children of migrants who may have done quite well at school but are still identifiable by colour and appearance and are discriminated against, Then, then the problem persists. So it's not so much what the minority does, it's what the majority of society does, and that's what we need to act upon, I guess. Um, Policy success, yes, Um, which is a much more boring topic than than failure, but of of course migration policies do succeed very often. And um, is Britain an example... Um, I find British policies very ambivalent. I mean, I think Britain has done quite well on policies for skilled migrants. It's clearly done quite well with regard to migration policies towards the accession states. Uh, It's been appalling on asylum policies. I mean, you know, the reason asylum has fallen so sharply is that it's incredibly difficult, almost impossible, for people to come to Britain and make legal asylum claims. And it's done very badly on managing low-skilled migration. I mean, I think Britain systematically uses illegal migration. So it's a a mixed bag. But, yes, there are successful migration policies. I mean, again, think of Australia. Australia has had planned migration since 1947. At the moment, it's got the highest migration for years and years, a very well-managed program. Um, I mean, people think that Australia has done very badly because it's got a very bad asylum po- policy, which, which I agree with it. I mean, you know, the asylum policy has been very negative. It's been very successful with economic migration. So there are a lot of examples around. Um, perhaps just to close, I, I was just in Korea a few weeks ago, and the, uh, the, the um, government there has started a migration policy, and they tried initially to bring in people as Chinese and to pay them half the proper wages, a very exploitative system. And it collapsed within four or five years, and they're now setting up a proper migration system and an anti-discrimination board and all sorts of things. So I think, you know, there there is a, a process of learning very quickly in some places. But then if you look at Germany, perhaps, really an interesting example, Germany, a modern democratic state, with the highest immigration of any European country and until 1998 all the politicians in Germany of all the main parties except the Greens said Germany is not a country of immigration you know, head in the sand complete unwillingness to see what was going on around them it has changed now so you could say Germany is an example of adaptation but why did it take 30 years? anyway
0: Thank you, Stephen, and, uh, and before I let you go, let me thank you all for coming and also express some particular thanks to Anna Boucher, Justin Guests, Federico Baradello and Marco Morales for, for organizing tonight's event. Um, I would like to remind you that the next lecture in this series is uh, by Philippe Legrand, the 6th of December. He will be talking about... The theme of Europe should open its door to immigrants. We have also invited the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, to speak to us in the spring term, and we hope to inform you very soon um, about more details on our website, where you can also sign up to join our email list, and we'll be happy to, to keep you up um, on, on latest on, on, on future developments. If you have time, obviously, please join us in the future, but also join us now upstairs on the third floor in the Café Pepe for a drink um, where the reception will be held. Um, but before you all make your way out, uh, please uh, join me in thanking Stephen Castles for a very stimulating effort.